Thanks, y'all, for being here so much. Uh, Turn in your Bibles, please, to the book of Hebrews. Um, We haven't been in Hebrews for a while, uh, since before before summer, so here we are returning, picking it up, and it'll take us, uh, hopefully, through uh, almost Christmas, and here we are in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 1. Hebrews 9, verse 1, and this is God's Word. Now, even the first covenant had regulations for worship in an earthly place of holiness. For a tent was prepared, the first section, in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of the presence. It is called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place, having the golden altar of incense and the ark of the covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden urn holding the manna, and Aaron's staff that budded, and the tablets of the covenant. Above it were the cherubim of glory, overshadowing the mercy seat. That's the lid of the ark, the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail. These preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section, performing their ritual duties. But into the second, only the high priest goes, but he go, and he but once a year, and not without taking blood which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic for the present age. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. But when Christ appeared as high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, Jesus entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Let's pray one more time. Father, may the truth be spoken and received here today in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Well, pop quiz. You don't have to shout out an answer, but pop quiz. Um, uh, who closed the door of the ark? God closed the door of the ark. And uh, by closing up the door of the ark, he shut out the water, right? And uh, there's another byproduct. He shut out something else too. What? Everybody else. He shut out the water. He shut out everybody else. All right? And solemnly said. And so don't be fooled by a Hollywood movie that might depict uh, Noah as being kind of a jerk. Oh, Noah, why do you have to be so close-minded, and why don't you include people? And don't be fooled by a Hollywood movie that allows for a stowaway uh, on the ark. Oh, a sneaky stowaway got on there. No, no, no. Uh, God shut the door of the ark. God does the opening and the closing of things in the salvation business. And by the way, um, um, the ESV says of that, the Lord shut him in, shut Noah and his family in. 
Okay, that's what the ESV says in most translations. But other translations say, um, God closed the door behind him. God closed it for him. God sealed him in. And prior to that, it says of Noah that Noah did all that God commanded him. Okay, the point is that God is in charge. God is in charge of this redemptive scene. Uh, God is the one who makes the way or no. He's the one who opens and closes. That's how it is in the salvation business. So let's look at our main idea here today. Jesus has opened the way to God. When it comes to God's intercession um, on behalf of the sinner uh, and sin, no one gets to devise his or her uh, moral uh, acceptance. We don't get to say, okay, well, I look back at my life and there's things I'm not quite proud of and there are things I know that I've done have been <laughs> wrong. Uh, and so here's how I'm going to handle it. In fact, I mean, if you look around the world, um, everybody's got some kind of a system. Everybody's got some kind of a method uh, of, trying to, of trying to understand all these things and, and deal with those things. Um, and, and the Bible's point is that Jesus is the one who has opened the way. We don't get to define it. God defines it. He opens or closes the way. So let's look at our first of two points. But within each point, you can see that there's three components, and we'll try to look at each of those um, uh, as best we can. So first point is external observance, earthly tabernacle, limited access. All right, let's go, let's go to the word here. I, I admit there's a, there's a lot in that, but um, to set the pace, let me start this way. I'm going to show you something in this passage um, that I want to be careful about. You know, the scriptures are all important. Every word in the scriptures are important, every word. We don't get to elevate one part of the scriptures over another part. It's all God's inspired word. It's the whole counsel of God. We need it all. Um, we don't get to say this is the this is the best verse. This is one. This is one of the. This is the best verse on this in the Bible. We don't get to say that uh, because it's all God's word. It's the, the whole counsel of God. So we don't get to elevate certain parts or have favorite verses or fast forward over something if we don't feel like it's important. I, I want to be careful to say that because I'm about to skip over something before we talk about something. Look, if you would, at the end of verse five. This is very important for us, and I think the, the writer of Hebrews invites us to look at this. It's very important to his, his, um, his point. He says in, in uh, second part of uh, verse 5, of these things we cannot now speak in detail. Now, here's what he's not saying about that. He's not, what he's not saying by that, of these things we cannot now speak in detail, he's not saying boy, we just don't have the details. He's not saying that. We, we just don't have a lot of information, so we can't be, speak in detail. That's not what he's saying. Um, neither is he saying um, it's, that it's some kind of cryptic speech. We can't speak in detail. Oh, it's mysterious. No, no, no. He has just said a lot of things. He's about to say more things about the, the old way of worship, the old tabernacle, the old covenant. He's saying lots of things. But what he's saying when he says, of these things, we cannot now speak in detail, what he's saying is, hey, listen, I could go on and on and on about this, but I don't want you to miss the point. That's what he's saying. Of these things, we don't have time to really expand. We could go on and on about it, but I don't want that to be the point. I want this to be the point. I don't want you to miss it. And you got to remember that this is a Jewish writer writing to a Jewish people about their Jewish religion and the Jewish Messiah. 
So his assumption is that they are very well versed in the Old Testament, that that they do value God's word, that they know it readily. And when he cites stuff about the temple, uh, it's foreign to us. It's kind of weird with the most holy place and incense and a golden urn and manna and Aaron's rod that budded and so on. I mean, that's strange to us. And a priest that comes in with blood and, and all that, it's odd to us, but it's not odd to the original reader. He's saying, we could go on and on about this original reader, but we're not, we don't have time to go into detail here because I want you to see something in particular. And I think the thing that he wants us to see is that Jesus has opened the way to God. And so to our sermon point, uh, let's look at the first part of it. Uh, look at verse one. It says, um, now even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness. Now, you read that, and, and it's Bible words, but it's, it, it can be overwhelming, can't it? I mean, you've got a first covenant, regulations for worship, an earthly place of holiness. I mean, what are, what are these Christian thoughts? What, what does the Bible mean here? Well, uh, look at the end of chapter 8, verse 13. In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the, old, the first one obsolete, and what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. Now, you read that and you go, wow, now I'm even more confused. I mean, it, it seems to make sense, These, uh, but, but what does that mean? Well, um, if you're still confused, it's okay. About half the real estate, the scriptural real estate in chapter 8, is a quote from the book of Jeremiah. Uh, let's look at it briefly. It's from Jeremiah 31, 31, and the verses following. I mean, it's lifted right out of Jeremiah, and the he- writer of Hebrews is writing to the Jewish people, and he's like, look, here's what I want you guys to, to focus on. Um, chapter uh, 8, verse 8. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel, with the house of Judah, not like the covenant I made with their fathers on the day I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant, and so I showed no concern for them, um, declares the Lord. Okay, well, if you're still confused, again, I say uh, it's okay, because God did something amazing to bring light on the whole situation. Um, Look at verse 10 and following. This is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel, okay? It's different. Here's the the covenant I'm going to make. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. They shall, not, uh, they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother saying, know the Lord. They shall all know me from the least to the greatest. I mean, it's gonna be widespread. I will be merciful toward their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. So the old covenant in shorthand, when we're reading about it at the end of verse, uh, chapter eight, when we're reading about it at the beginning of verse nine, what, what the old covenant is saying in shorthand is this. Um, God um, says, I will protect these people, the Israelites, uh, and they will be named as my people. I'll protect them, but they're going to have to worship me exclusively and obey me exclusively. That's the old covenant. And, uh, you know, the, the passage in Jeremiah, if we, if we did turn to it, it goes on to say this. Um, this new covenant is going to be different. Here's how it's going to be different. They shall be my people. I will be their God. There's that covenant statement again. Um, I will give them one heart and one way 
that they may fear me forever for their own good and the good of their children after. I will make an everlasting covenant. I will not turn away from them doing good to them. I will put the fear of me into their hearts. Don't you love that? I'll put the fear of me into their hearts that they may not turn from me. So all that said, external observance is the first of, of our first item in our, our, our point here. Um, to what does that refer? The first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness. Again, the, uh, the idea in the old covenant is that God would name a people, he would protect them, then they would have to obey him exclusively and worship him exclusively. Now, um, here's, here's, here's what this external uh, obedience and worship looked like. Now, if you would just take a look at this. Um, in, in the wilderness wanderings, the Israelite wilderness wanderings, there was a tabernacle. The tabernacle was a tent structure, okay? So they're a nomadic people as they're wandering through the desert, and there's this tent structure, and it's set up like this, and that's a pretty good, that's one of the better ones I could find online. That's actually a model somewhere, um, and uh, you can see that there's the white around it, and that's the outer court there. And then there's uh, that, that thing right in the middle there with four horns. There's a horn on each side of that thing right in the, that square thing, uh, that, that altar. And, uh, in, and then, there's the, the, then there's the inside here. Let me, but what I want to show you here is this. Um, see, when I go, if I go back here, it, you, you just see it's the temple out in the middle of, it's a tabernacle out in the middle of nothing, right? So it's out in the middle of some desert, okay? But this is a better idea. Um, this is a, there's tons of artists' renderings of this, okay? But you can see where it is in the middle of everything. And you can see that the tribes of Israel are encamped around it. And you can see the artist's depiction of the glory of the Lord descending in a mysterious and profound way, whatever that looked like, uh, right at the tent of meeting there, right in the middle of that whole thing. But you see that it's in the midst of all the people. Here's another artist's rendering. Um, probably a little more uh, what it looked like. But um, you can see that the tribes of Israel are encamped around it, that God's presence is in the middle of everything. It's in the middle of, of their lives. Um, and here's another uh, shot of it. You see the four horns of the altar on that thing right there. Uh, and then you go inside and, and so on. Is that the last thing? Oh, yeah, yeah. And here is the permanent one, the temple. And you can see that it's a permanent structure, but the same thing, same elements uh, and so on. Now, Inside, it's a, it tells us in our passage here, there are two places. There's a place at the end of verse 2 called the holy place. There's a place at the end of verse 3 called the most holy place, all right? And so in the most holy place on the far hand, right-hand side there, you've got that Indiana Jones-looking thing. That's a pretty good depiction, the Ark of the Covenant. Inside, you've got the Ten Commandments. You've got a jar, jar of manna, and you've got Aaron's rod that budded. And the high priest would go into the holy place there on the left, but only into the most holy place once a year where he would not go in. It says in verse um, 7, he would not go in without taking blood. Now, uh, without going into tons more detail on that, okay, and I got some stuff I'll show you at the end. What's so interesting is you've uh, you've got the writer of Hebrews saying, of these things we cannot now speak in detail. Well, you know, I'm reading it, and I'm like, it sounds like a lot of detail, doesn't it? <laughs> it sounds like a lot of detail about the priestly function, what's going on. And then he goes on to say more stuff, verse 6 and following. I mean, it seems like a lots of detail. Um, you know, the priest goes in, not without blood. He offers uh, sins for himself. I mean, offers a sacrifice for himself, the unintentional sins of the people, um, and, and so on. And uh, so what's the application for you? 
I think at, at this point in our, in our study, the application for you is what he's trying to do is convey the richness of the significance of that which pointed to Jesus. The old covenant pointed to the ultimate answer, which is Jesus. There was a picture in the tabernacle um, that explains something about what God is like. Now, now, we read this and we go, wow, that looks really strange. I mean, if you've been to Europe and you've seen beautiful cathedrals and everything, you've seen ornate stuff and pretty things and artisans that have, have worked on it and so on. But even so, this is very strange. I mean, you're talking about, um, you know, in that, that, that altar with the horns on it, you're talking about people coming in over and over, day after day, week after week, year after year, bringing an animal in, and that animal is killed, and there's blood, and there's smoking, and there's, there's roasting of things, and I mean, it just, it smells like corkies all the time. I mean, is that not, that, that's so strange for us to see that, and the death of these animals, and we go, wow, that's so weird. Uh, and as I pointed out before, it's only weird because none of us have ever killed a chicken, you know? Uh, it, it's, it's weird, uh, animals and blood and all that kind of stuff. But what, what are we supposed to see? Like, if God were going to communicate to human beings over thousands of years in a way that would transcend time and culture and all that, and that we would be sitting here in 2015 studying this and going, wow, what is this God like? Well, that stuff, that as strange as it is to us, at least conveys a very powerful and clear idea. That is this. God can only be approached in the way prescribed by him. We don't get to cook up a plan of salvation. It's a plan of salvation. It's his plan. He gets to say that. He gets to say how how people come to him. Um, It also shows us that there's something very different about this God. There's something very morally separate about him, very morally special. And so you take into account his holiness, um, and holy, by, by the way, is a word that's mentioned over and over and over in this passage right in front of us, holy, holiness, and so on, the holy place. If God is holy and he must be approached in a certain way, and we humans turned against him, and weren't approaching him in the way that he wanted to be approached, or we're ignoring him altogether, um, what kind of situation does that put human beings in? Under his hot, righteous displeasure. That, that's a bad situation to be in. So what is God's answer? Well, you know, um, even in the curse, I mean, even in the early pages of Genesis in chapter 3, even in the curse, there's this hint of redemption. Even in the curse, God hints that there's going to be a rescuer. First pages of scripture, he hints this. And then early in Genesis, I mean, he, you know, he deals with Noah early on in, what is it, chapter six or something like, uh, chapter six, I think. Um, yeah, hang on a second, uh, just so I'm not, uh, yeah, I mean, yeah, Noah sh- starts showing up in chapter five and six. And, uh, and all of a sudden, he comes to Abraham in chapter 12, and then 15, he covenants with him and so on, and he comes to this, this pagan, and uh, he says, hey, Abraham, I got, a, I got a plan. 
I hinted at it back in the early pages of Genesis, and I got a plan. I'm going to execute it through you, an unlikely dude. It's not like Abraham was so wonderful. It's, he's a pagan worshiper, a pagan idol worshiper. God takes him, tells him, I'm going to make a nation out of you. He does. Uh, that nation grows. Moses, you know, they're enslaved. He leads them out of Exodus. God leads them into a land of promise where this whole sacrificial system is set up. And year after year after year, it demonstrates um, what God is like. And, but it also demonstrates that they've got to keep coming back and keep coming back and that the, the sin debt is never thoroughly, ultimately paid for. It's temporarily paid for, but it points to the ultimate answer. And ladies and gentlemen, the ultimate answer is Jesus Christ. And so the second item in our point, it's not up there anymore, but is the, is the earthly tabernacle. And, and as I'm saying, it dealt with sin in a way that was not permanent. And that's kind of the underpinning of, uh, of the, the whole Old Covenant is that it was temporary, not permanent. It, it, it caused the worshiper to anticipate the ultimate answer that would be found in Jesus Christ. Um, you look at verse 9, it says, um, oh yeah, um, uh, it was symbolic for the present age. Um, the, the meaning here, um, yeah, look at verse 8. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic of the present age. What he's saying there is everything was waiting, groaning for Jesus Christ, and now Jesus is here, and the old things are becoming obsolete, and uh, the permanent answer has finally come. Um, now, when Christians read... They did not continue in my covenant, verse 9. Um, and, um, and so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. Was that verse 9? Yeah. Um, I might have the wrong verse down there. But uh, wow, where the heck is that? How do you know? Anyway, they did not continue in my covenant, so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. Is that 8? Where the heck is that? Chapter Chapter Yay, chapter 8. Thank you so much. All right, so, but the point is, we read that and got, got, we go, oh yeah, chapter 8. Yeah, chapter 8, verse 9. They did not continue in my covenant, so I showed no concern for them. We, we go, ooh, wait a minute. That's kind of scary. God made a covenant. Uh, they, they weren't faithful to it, and God showed no concern to them. But ladies and gentlemen, uh, that, that was what the old covenant was. The old covenant was... I will protect you. I will name you as my people, my chosen people, but you are going to be a faithful bride and you are going to obey me exclusively and worship me wholeheartedly. They didn't do that. And so God was being faithful to what he said he would do. I'll tell you what, I'm going to let the Assyrians and the Babylonians capture you and disperse you and take you out of here. That's what God does. All right? And so God never made any unclear stipulations. He did exactly what he told them that he would do. Um, so the last item in our, in our point here is that the way was not yet opened. All right? And uh, in verse uh, 8, it says, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened. That is, as it says in verse 3, limited access. Now, that all seems strange to us, as I say. But again, if you were to put in a system that would transcend time and culture, and uh, it would talk about not being able to approach God without a blood payment for sin. I mean, think about that. They, the, the, the priest could not go in there without taking blood, which he offered for himself and then also the people. 
I mean, if, you were, if God was going to convey something about himself, isn't that a powerful way to do it? Sinners cannot approach me without blood. And as I've said to you many, many times, if you get transferred with your job to some other city, visit a church for three weeks, and if they don't say holy, and if they don't say blood, the preacher doesn't sing it, say it, and the people don't sing it. Holy and blood. If they don't say those things, get the heck out, because that's not where you want to raise your family. The Bible message is this. God's message about himself is this, that the sinner cannot approach without the payment of sin. And the problem with the sacrificial system, the old covenant, is that it had to happen again and again. I mean, you think about Israelites encamped around that tabernacle, day in, day out, animals trickling in, people in line all the time, things all the time, priests functioning all the time, changing the oil all the time, changing the incense all the time, day by day, putting out the bread once a week, each loaf representing the 12 tribes of Israel, over and over and over again, year after year after year, the high priest going in on one day with a blood offering and killing a bull for his own sin and a scapegoat and a a goat that's sacrificed. I mean, year after year, the people get this idea that this God is holy. But this thing is temporary and can't ultimately solve it. And it, uh, it really comes into play when we get to the issue of conscience. All right, let's look at our second and last point. So the first one, you see external observance, earthly tabernacle, limited access. I mean, you think about the holy place and the most holy place. There's a curtain. Guess what the curtain does? It limits access. Well, here we are on the second point. Internal transformation, heavenly tabernacle, and full access. You can see there, that's a good, that's a good summary of the difference between the old and new covenants. Um, so let's look at verse 9. Um, it's symbolic for the present age. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper. Now, friends, the the more I'm in God's Word and the longer I teach it and the more I think about the gospel, the more I know that the conscience is just such a big issue. And selling point's not the right uh, way to put it, but I mean, if you're trying to minister to a lost world, a hurting world, starting with the cleansing of the conscience is not a bad place to to be. Um, You know... uh, I want to be careful of the time. I'm straying slightly. But, you know, um, I I was thinking about this a a week or two ago. I uh, knew a missionary friend, and um, and, and you may have heard the story. Maybe it's a famous missionary story. Maybe you've heard it, and you're like, yeah, we've heard this one or whatever. But um, he he showed me this video, and um, it was a video about a missionary that went to a people group that had never heard of this God, never even heard of it, never heard of Jesus, never heard of, you know, the disciples, never heard of any of this. And uh, so the missionary goes to this faraway people group. They've never heard a thing about the gospel. They're completely blank, never heard a thing about it. Now, where would you start? What would you say? Uh, I mean, you know, Paul, at least he was able to say, hey, this unknown God that I see you have a tribute to, let me talk about him. He had a, he had a way into their understanding. But what would you do? Here's what, what was that? What was that? You'd point at the moon? Gotcha. Hey, that's awesome. That's awesome. Well, here's what he did. Uh, He goes, well, I'll tell you what. We're going to start on the very first page of this book. That's what he did. And uh, 
Not a bad answer there, Sherry, because uh, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Pretty good. He starts on the very first page, and they just start reading Genesis, and they start reading the Old Testament, and they stay in order. And I mean, day after day, they keep coming back to God's Word, coming back to God's Word, coming back to God's Word. Now imagine being completely, you know, not in the Bible Belt, not in America, uh, not where you haven't heard these things, and there's Wikipedia and and all that, you know, but just coming in cold. He starts with Genesis 1-1, he moves through the Scriptures, and by the time they get to the Old Testament, the end of the Old Testament, the people are petrified. (laughs) And they're going... Well, what's the answer then? I mean, God has made this agreement with these people and they weren't faithful to the agreement and God was faithful to the judgment that he promised if they weren't faithful to the agreement. And uh, now they're dispersed. Now there's 400 years of silence and what's the answer? I mean, they're like, their spirits are on the edge and they're waiting, they're anticipating. What now? And I'm telling you that that's the point. That's the difference between external uh, observance and internal transformation. It's the difference between limited access and full access, a temporary tabernacle to a a permanent heavenly tent. That's the point. When Jesus shows up on the scene, it's like, oh, the pressure valve is released. It goes off because it's fulfilled in Jesus Christ. He is the answer. And so the issue of the conscience, again, is one of the most powerful things I can think of. I mean, aren't you ashamed of things you've said and done? I mean, sin, you know, it's destructive, but it's humiliating too, isn't it? You look back on your life and you just go, man, I'm humiliated by my sin. Um, It's times on the pillow uh, that that get you. And I'll tell you, even Hemingway said so. I mean, Hemingway was like, you know, uh, it's easy to be bold and confident all day long and barrel through life, but when you're alone and your head's on the pillow, it's the conscience that, that is so heavy. It can't be cleansed. And there's no other religious system that you can go, wow, the conscience has been, be, is, is cleansed. You know why? Because every other world religious system has you part- doing, 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 earning, finishing, adding to, but not Christianity. It's Christ and him alone. It relieves the conscience. Um, and, and, you know, look at verse uh, 12. Jesus entered once for all into the holy places. Not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. Friends, that's the only thing that can address your conscience, that it was perfectly and finally and freely performed by another who's not you. If it were up to you, trouble. I mean, you can't even make it an hour without sticking to your convictions. But it's done outside of you, permanently, finally, fully, and freely. Uh, Verse 11, um, uh, when Christ appeared as the high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, in case you don't understand what that means, there's parentheses for you in the ESV, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation. The idea is a heavenly tabernacle. The heavenly realm, the throne room of God, Christ has walked right into the most holy place, the holy of holies, the throne room of God, where he makes this transaction on our behalf. 
And that's why it does what it says in verse 12, which is secures an eternal redemption. And that's the last thing we'll talk about in our final point here. You've got internal transformation. Uh, the conscience is addressed. You've got heavenly tabernacle. It's where Jesus went to go do the final and permanent work in the most holy place, the throne room of God, where you're okay. And then full access. If you would turn in your Bibles, we're going to leave Hebrews so you can just let it go. But uh, go to Matthew 27, if you would. Matthew 27. And um, verse uh, 50. Yeah, Matthew 27, verse 50. Jesus is on the cross. And he cries out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. He sacrificially gives his life. His blood was poured out. It was spilled unto actual physical death. Verse 51. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Now, to what does that refer? The curtain of the temple. It's the big, thick, plush, heavy, orpheum curtain. Between the holy place and the most holy place. The most holy place where you, could, you can't go in. Where the high priest would only go in once a year. And after much preparation, which I'll show you in just one, one second. The most holy place. That curtain is there. And, you know, most priests never went in there. And, and if they did, it was a special honor. And if they did, it was only once a year. And if they did, they had to take all these preparations. It was this curtain of separation that, that kept out. And Jesus dies on the cross. And the thing that's noted is that the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And by the way, it goes on to say, and the earth shook and the rocks were split. The tombs also were opened and many bodies of saints who had fallen asleep were raised coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, and they went into the holy city and appeared to many. Can you imagine? What a rumbling. What an affecting of human life. And uh, uh, the centurion and those who were with him keeping watch over Jesus saw the earthquake and saw what took place, and they were filled with awe. And they said, truly, this was the Son of God. Now, this curtain tearing from top to bottom, the significance of that, I found this other really cool picture. Look at the... Look at the artist's depiction of the priests. <laughs> and, and by the way, I love the artist's respect for the most holy place. I mean, the curtain is, isn't, it's, it's still got a couple threads hanging on. <laughs> so we're not even, I mean, you can just tell the awe that the, the, the creator of this image is. But I mean, look at the, look at the priests. They're like, shiba to what? The, the, the curtain, the cur we, we can't go in there. It's the most holy place. I mean, we, we can't. And, and so what is the significance of that? Jesus dies. He gives up his spirit. The, 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 it is finished. The sin debt's been paid and the curtain is torn open. The significance is full access. We have full access to the real God because, not just because he became a little extra nice, it is because the sin debt was paid Finally. No more need for t uh, ceremonial sacrifices. No more need for mile markers that point us to the ultimate fulfillment, which is Jesus. The work is done. 
We have access to the real God fully, finally, freely because of what Jesus accomplished. All right, last thing. Um, and we'll, we'll wrap it up here. I, I, I won't read you all this, but I mean, this is a great description of temple worship here by this commentator. And uh, he says, once you have a feel for the tabernacle, you can then begin to appreciate its worship. Right? So when we look at this strange, wow, the tabernacle and the priests and the blood and the goats and, the, you know, the, uh, the wash basin and the, the, uh, the candles and the, the table with the bread and the incense right near the holy place that wafts on in, I mean, you, you go, wow, it's all so strange. He's saying once you have a feel for the tabernacle, what it all points to, then it all starts to come together about the Savior. He says a tabernacle's worship was continual. Worshipers brought their sacrifices to the bronze altar in the outer courtyard, one after another after another. Week after week, priests were chosen by lot for the high honor of their career to serve in the first room, the holy place. They tended to the seven lamps morning and evening. They stoked the coals of the altar of incense. They exchanged the bread weekly and so on. But about the most holy place, behind the curtain, they had no access whatsoever. And uh, the ministry of the Holy, Holy of Holies was uh, uh, the, dom- the domain of the high priest once a year. And when the high priest would go in there, check this out. On the Day of Atonement, um, prior to that, uh, he would make no mistake. He would uh, uh, not come close to anything that would make him unclean. Um, he would leave home and stay day and night at the temple for a week. Uh, on the morning of the Day of Atonement, he would offer a burnt offering. Following that, he would bathe his entire body and take off his, uh, uh, his normal priestly garments and put on white priestly garments. Um, then he would put his hands on the head of a bull, slaughter the bull, and so on. He would go in there, he'd put incense on the, uh, in the, on the mercy seat and the blood and so on. I mean, it just goes on and on. The point is, ladies and gentlemen, these meticulous stipulations are supposed to tell us something about what God is like. That he's only approached in the way that he says. That he's untouchable in a sense. That there's a barrier between him and the sinner. And the significance of the curtain being torn in two is gigantic, ladies and gentlemen. Gigantic. That'll be on, on, on the forefront of your minds um, come Easter. The, the curtain's been torn in two. And what was cut off, what was separate, what was closed is now blown open with first access. You know, uh, I've said this before, but um, when, when, when John F. Kennedy was in office, you know, I mean, every president has secret service and so on, and, they, and they're very protective. You can't just walk up to the president and go, hey, can I talk to you, Mr. President? I mean, you've noticed they shut down entire city blocks in New York and, so, and stuff like that, right? But one person could stroll right on into the Oval Office, walk right past security, and curl up right at the president's feet. You know who it was? JFK Jr., the son. <laughs> That's what God makes you in Jesus Christ. He gives you full access where you just walk right into the most holy place without restriction. He receives you as his own child. And that only happens because Christ is the final full payment for sin. He has opened the way uh, to the Holy One. Let's pray. Holy Father, we confess that um, these things seem foreign to us, but I, 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 I confess, Lord, that it, it, it seems more foreign, not just culturally and uh, t- 
time-wise and them being a nomadic people and all that stuff, it, it, it's, it's foreign, I think, to me because I don't understand holiness very much. Um, we, we really, we hear these terms and we try to grasp them, but um, I fear, Lord, we don't understand your burning hot moral perfection very well. Our prayer is that you would show it to us, and as you show it to us, that you would relieve us, relieve our consciences. Uh, Let us know that our sin debt is eternally paid for uh, by the righteousness of God, the Son, the sacrifice, the priest, uh, Jesus Christ, and we pray it in his name. Amen.